Amen. Well, since Phil uh, floated the idea of this, uh, this series a few weeks back, I've been looking greatly forward to it because, like any uh, self-respecting male, I don't have emotions at all, which is good to know, uh, which I obviously uh, am joking about. But I think there's a serious point to be made there because I grew up in a fairly traditional, conservative, working-class suburb of Sydney uh, down in Blacktown, and that was in the, the late 80s, early 90s, my most formative years. And I think the normal view that did surround me there, the vibe I picked up, was that men weren't really supposed to have emotions. Uh, women had emotions, and they did things like cry and feel stuff, and, and that was something that often uh, was a source of jokes and, and derision. Uh, the assumption was that there was a weakness there. Uh, and you saw that in TV shows and in just the way people spoke. Uh, but men kind of kept their emotions bottled up, kept them under control. We heard things like, big boys don't cry. Any man who did cry a bit or get in touch with their emotions was said to be in touch with their feminine side. And, and on and on it went. Now, I don't know if that was your experience, uh, particularly ladies. I'd love to hear more about the pressures you felt because I didn't feel them, obviously, uh, growing up and, and the way emotions were kind of thought of in, in the world that you grew up in. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to assume that that is not completely atypical. That's, that's a fairly standard experience of what it is that emotions were supposed to be. Uh, and certainly when I asked Tom this morning, he said, you know, what are you supposed to do with your emotions? He said, eh, certainly don't show them. Uh, so that, there's still a view that's there, even if it's changing. Uh, but obviously there's going to be some massive problems with that way of thinking. And the one I want to focus on to, uh, today, if you'll come with me to verse 25, is the problem with that kind of thinking about emotions that we find in this passage of the, of the Good Samaritan. There we find a young lawyer, an expert in the Jewish law, comes to Jesus and says, essentially, what is it that God actually wants of people? Fundamentally, what does God want from his people? Uh, you can see that's the question. Um, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus interprets it that way because he says, well, you tell me, what, what does the law say? So what is it that God actually wants from people? And when Jesus puts this question back on the lawyer, he rightly answers in verse 27 there, the words we've already affirmed today as being uh, the great command, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength, and love your neighbour as yourself. Now just think about what that's saying for a moment. If you were to go back into the Old Testament law, most of us would know the Ten Commandments. Uh, but if you count up all the separate laws that God gave to Moses as the people were there uh, receiving the law, the traditional Jewish count is 613 separate individual commandments. 613. And what Jesus is saying, and what this expert in the law is rightly saying as well, is that at the centre of all of that, God actually wants an emotional response. It boils down to this emotional response of love. Love God, love your neighbour. And of course this isn't an isolated command, is it? We can read our New Testaments, for instance, and find there that we're told we're to rejoice, we're to feel joy in Christ. And we're told do not fear at points. We're told do not be anxious. So actually, right emotions are something which God commands of us. 
uh, at many points throughout his word. Now that raises an obvious difficulty and, and question for us, doesn't it? How can God command an emotional response? How can God command emotions? In many ways, that's the question we're going to need to be uh, answering over the next two weeks. Phil next week is going to talk much more about what emotions are in a bit more depth than I'll touch on today. Uh, I'm going to focus on why they are important in the Christian life. And what I hope to show you today is essentially what I've written there at the top of your sermon outline, that emotions are important because they're one of the most significant, most important gauges that we have for the maturity of a Christian. How are we going in our faith? Well, our emotions are actually going to be a big telltale sign as to how we're going. And even though they're, they're involuntary at the moment at which we experience them, you know that you can't just be sad and then by an act of will, kind of click your fingers and say, I'm happy now. We know they're involuntary, but we can work on them. In fact, we can shape our emotions and the, and the responses that we have to situations. And because God commands it, I think we have a responsibility to do just that. Uh, so as we tackle this topic, we're going to move in three directions as to why emotions are important. Uh, we're going to say that emotions have this outward element to them, uh, that they have an inward element, and they're going to have what I call uh, a Godward element, uh, this upward element. All of them are inseparable, but we'll deal with them each in turn and hopefully see how they all tangle themselves together. So first of all, emotions have this, this outward element to them, and that is emotions need an object. Hopefully that's, that's obvious enough. Uh, but there actually needs to be something out there that makes me feel happy or sad or angry or calm or, or whatever the emotion is. There needs to be an object that makes me feel an emotion that I'm responding to. And in fact, depending on what that object is, uh, that's going to shape the emotional response, isn't it? So obviously in our passage, love God, love your neighbour, uh, is uh, that's the object, God or the neighbour. And depending on whether I'm loving God or loving my neighbour, there's a, a very different appropriate way to do each of those that we need to wrestle with. And I think we can see this fleshed out for us in the parable. If you come with me to verse 29, you see the lawyer's question there. And it's an odd focus. He's, he's given this great command and he says, okay, well, who's my neighbour? Who's my neighbour? And that's significant because that word itself would have been loaded. Uh, this Jewish lawyer would never have thought, for instance, of a Samaritan like the one in the parable as his neighbour. He'd certainly not have thought of a Roman who were, they were occupying the land. He wouldn't have thought of them as his neighbour. He would have thought only of his fellow Jews as being his neighbour. Now remember, we're told he wants to justify himself at this point. He's saying, okay, well that's the command. I'm doing pretty good. He wants to show that he's doing pretty well in this loving his neighbour game. And so I think what he's trying to do there with this question is he's trying to draw the circle. Who counts as my neighbour as small as possible? That's what he really wants to do, so that he can say, well, as few people as possible actually demand the love that, that God's commanding here. So it's all about who is the object of this emotional response. Because I'm sure he was thinking, well, if, if the circle's only big enough to include my fellow faithful law-keeping Jews, I'm, I'm doing pretty well. I've probably loved them exactly like 
they'd, love, uh, they'd want to be loved. But maybe if the circle gets bigger and you're including, say, the, the, the Jews that just aren't keeping the law, you know, the tax collectors and the sinners that Jesus is always derided for hanging out with, well, that changes the love and, and I don't know that I, I want to love them. Or if it's so big, Jesus, that it kind of includes the Romans, well, then I certainly don't want to love them. That's not a kind of love that I want to show and maybe I'm not doing so well at that point. And so this really is a question about the object. Who deserves to be the object of my love? And Jesus sees that this is what he's getting at and he responds brilliantly. If you look at verse 30, the way he starts the parable, it's as simple as a man was going down, he says. Now we're going to have a bit more to say about that in just a minute. But notice how generic the man is. You see, everyone else in the parable, the three men who pass by, are specifically identified by their nationality, two of them, in fact, by their religious office that they held within Israel, and their important details. But equally important, I believe, is the fact that Jesus doesn't give us any details as to who this victim is. He's just a guy who was walking down the road. I think he does that because he's refusing to play the game of drawing in the circle like uh, this lawyer is. He's not wanting to restrict who the neighbour is, who should be shown this, uh, this emotion of love in this case. Now we're going to consider that more, but we're going to do that as we move from the outward to the inward there on your outlines. Uh, because these are, these are two sides of one coin. Uh, the outward is going to be shaped by what's in the inward. And when I talk about the inward side of emotions, what I mean is my beliefs and my expectations and what I value, the way I see the world around me. That shapes things. And it's this inward, what I believe in here, that, that shapes how I respond to this thing out here. Or in the case of the lawyer, it's what he believes about God that's going to shape how he sees the victim in the parable. Now clearly, as we get to that, the most depressing sporting event of all year uh, was Game 3 of the Origin. Can we all agree on that? Yep. Most depressing event, wasn't it, Marcia? I don't think everyone agrees on that, and that's what makes this a good case study for what we're talking about. Uh, <laughs> when I brought the Origin up, I'm betting there were, broadly speaking, three kinds of people in this room. There were those who thought, I wanted New South Wales to win. There were those who, for some reason, thought, I wanted Queensland to win. And then there were those who thought, why on earth is the preacher going on about sport again? Can't he just, can't he just leave this alone? Nothing is more boring. Nothing is a bigger waste of time. <laughs> We've got one person admitting where they're <laughs> I won't ask where everyone's at within that scheme of things. But... Depending on where you were, that would have shaped the way you watched or didn't watch that game, wouldn't it? Now just think about it. If, if you'd come home from a big day and you thought, I'm going to sit down and relax in front of the telly, you flick it on and see the origin pop up, those who wanted New South Wales to win would have watched the game and gotten increasingly a, an emotional response of desperation and despair and, and sadness. Uh, those who wanted Queensland to win would have increasingly felt happy and smug, uh, no doubt. And those who 
turned it on and, and thought football's a waste of time, uh, their overriding emotional response was probably, I need to change the channel as quickly as I can. Right? One game, but the value that you placed on that game as you came into it completely changed uh, the way you watched that game, the way you felt about it as it, as it rolled on, or didn't feel about it in, in, in the other case. Now, as we come back to this lawyer friend of ours, uh, notice his question gives us in, that insight into, into his values. We've already touched on this a bit when we've talked about the, uh, the object, but his was a, a worldview that valued God's people, the Jews. His was a worldview that certainly had no room for Samaritans being of any real worth, and, and Roman Gentile sinners, they're just, to be polite, scum. Uh, in, in his worldview, that's the way he would have looked at at these people around him, which is partly why it's significant that Jesus doesn't mention anything about the victim's nationality. He's challenging the lawyer's values at, at the core. That's where this this parable is going. Uh, that's also, I believe, why he chooses the three people to walk past that he chooses. Yep. Why on earth, for instance, would a priest and a Levite walk past this guy that's lying there half dead. If you don't know about the priests and the Levites, they were the people amongst all of Israel who God set aside to work in the temple. They offered the sacrifices to God and uh, the priests did and the Levites assisted them. Uh, See, these are meant to be the good guys, the exemplary ones within Israel in a sense, and yet they're the ones that pass on by. And we might be tempted to think it's just heartlessness Maybe they're just callous people and they see him and they don't care. And that's possible, but maybe there's, maybe there's other values going on for them. For instance, the priests and the Levites had to maintain a, a ceremonial cleanliness. And they would have seen this guy who was described as looking half dead and thought, well, if he's dead and I touch him, that makes me ceremonially unclean, which means I can't go to the temple and offer these sacrifices that I'm supposed to offer until such a time, until I've gone through the, uh, the rituals and the time period for, for becoming cleansed. And so, actually, if I touch this dead guy, that means I can't do the very thing by which I do love God and love my fellow Israelites as I stand in the temple and, and do this task that God has given me. And so maybe there was this religious element to why they didn't want to touch this guy that would have seemed very legitimate in their minds. Or maybe it was something closer to what we might feel quite often or what we do feel. They knew this was a dangerous road. It was a notorious road that that they were travelling on from Jerusalem to Jericho. No doubt why Jesus picked it. And maybe they see this victim as they're lying on the road and they're going past in their big group thinking, what an idiot. Why didn't he travel with people? Why didn't he, he got himself into it. Why should I go out of my way and risk getting beaten up myself or risk the, the financial burden and the time that's going to be cost here to help him when he got himself into it. And maybe it's as simple as this guy wasn't a Jew. And like the lawyer, they might have thought, well, he's not really my neighbour, he's not my responsibility. Now, there's, there's lots of things that could have been going on in their heads, aren't there? I'm sure we could think of more things. Uh, but as they pass by, what are they showing in their response to this man? They're showing that their emotional response or their lack of emotional response, it portrays their values. 
that they either don't value this man's well-being or if they do value it, there's something else a, a higher up on the plane. There's something else more important. We can see that in their actions. Now that's contrasted by Jesus with the Samaritan man. Now the Samaritans had a perverted, heretical form of Judaism. They didn't get it right. And, and that's Jesus' own assessment of them if you go to John 4. The woman at the well and the things he says to her suggests the Jews did not have a high view of what the Samaritans believed. And yet, he comes along. How, how stinging must it have been for this lawyer? As the story is told, and we have the Samaritan as the one who stops and helps, and then Jesus says, well, you've heard of the three, Mr. Lawyer. Which one got it right? Which one was a neighbour? Which one had the emotional response that God demands of people? And it must have stung this lawyer then, knowing what the Jews thought of the Samaritans, to be cornered at the point where he had to say, well, I guess the Samaritan was the one who did what God wants, who had his emotions right. You see, Jesus has cornered him, challenged him on his worldview, and it's only at that point then that he can ask for the behavioural change, isn't it? It's only at that point that he can say, go and do likewise. He had to change the basic values, the inward, before this guy could be expected to change the way he responded to what's out there. So we've got the outward element, we've got the inward element to our emotional responses. We, we now need to move to the last direction, uh, the Godward direction and see how those two things come together for that. Remembering that this is the thing that I wanted to really say today, if you read the top of it, uh, again, the top of your sermon outlines, we're saying that the way we respond is an indicator of, of our maturity in, in our faith, or one of the main ones. Now, hopefully you're starting to see how that's coming together as we've considered what we've considered. But if you think about the whole of what happens in this parable, Jesus confronts the lawyer, doesn't he, right where his worldview is out of step with God's worldview. And that shows where he's lacking in his obedience to God. That shows, if you like, uh, where his faith is immature. Now, whenever we differ from God, it's, it's us that needs to change, not God. And so that's a sign where we need to grow and change when that happens. And so the question for us to be confronted with, hopefully, is if my emotions are a reflection, in fact, of what I believe, what I value, and they therefore kind of expose how much I'm aligned with God and his values, how do I think about the emotions that I see present in myself or the emotions that I see lacking in myself when they're lacking and they should be there? And how do I grow so that my emotions are more pleasing to God? And this is what I want to finish on, is wrestling with that question. And you'll see there's two sub-points here that we're going to wrestle with. The first is we actually need to see the effects of, of sin on our emotions. We don't normally think about sin as deeply as that, uh, but theologians talk about, if you want a, a funny word to take home, uh, theologians talk about the noetic effects of sin, which is just a fancy way of saying Sin corrupts every part of my being. It's like if you've got a big glass of water and you, you, know, you drop a little bit of arsenic in there. Is anyone going to drink that? No, because 
that little bit of arsenic actually affects the whole of the water, not just the little drop that's in there. It's not contained. Sin does that with, our, with all of us. Our whole being is, is corrupted by it, and that includes our emotions. Now, you'll hear people say things like, you know, listen to your heart and go with your gut and you've got to be true to your feelings and, and stuff like that. The idea is that somehow that, this is my conscience working through my emotions to, to guide me rightly. Uh, but actually, because of our sinfulness, our emotions, like everything else, uh, are working in opposition to God. Now, I am a, a fallen, sinful man, and that's why sometimes I can walk down the main street and see someone who clearly is in need, and my reaction is, is not love and pity. It might be frustration or you know, worry that if, if I catch this guy's eye, I'm going to need to help him, I'm going to be late for whatever I'm meant to be doing, or I'll think of the inconvenience and things. I have the wrong emotional response because of my sinfulness. So we need to recognise that because emotions are not the guide that keep us on the straight and narrow because of that. In fact, when we see our emotional responses and we think about them, they should be confronting. Confronting because you know that emotions are strong. They're the point at which you can't, you're not rationalising things away. You know, I, can, I can think something and, and rationalise it away to get to a better point and show people an outside exterior that's much more acceptable. But when I have that emotional response, when I get angry at something, and it just comes upon me. That's showing me what I really value or what's really upsetting me. And so that can confront me when I then go and read God's word and think about that emotion in light of it. And, and it's exposing me to just how far from perfect I really am. Now we need to get that. It's not a fun thing to get, but we need to get it. Because it's only once we get that that we can come to our second sub-point there and recognise that the gospel speaks to our emotions as well. Now, Christ died and rose again because your emotions are messed up. That's all part of it. In fact, if you go and read Romans 8, I love that passage, one of my favourite chapters in the Bible. It's a great passage that speaks of the way that the whole of creation just groans under the bondage of sin, just waits to be liberated by God. And God's done that in Christ. That's the work he's doing. The gospel of Christ, which tells us of the way God is liberating it, freeing creation from its bondage, and part of that involves us being made more like Christ. We're being made into his image, including our emotions. See, God longs to actually liberate that part of our beings as well so that we do love like we should love, so that we do fear or not fear as we should do those things. And so we need to begin that process in ourselves, with God's help, of course, of bringing these emotional responses in line with God. And fundamentally, that only happens as we learn to see the world differently. So we need to prayerfully pick up our Bibles and and read them. And, And a question to ask is, what does this passage actually tell me about the way God sees the world? A worldview question. For instance, why am I told not to fear death? I find death a bit scary. I think a lot of us do. And yet you think even in the Gospel reading that we just had in in Mark this morning, they're in the storm, 
uh, hardened fishermen. It must have been a, a horrible storm for these guys are feeling like they're going to die. And Jesus can demand of them, why are you still afraid? Why are you so wrong on this? Well, how can Jesus do that? Well, in this case, because the worldview is he's, he's in control. They just don't get that yet, the extent of his control over nature. And hey, even if they were to die at that point, Jesus has got something far better for them. And he's still even in control at that point. They feared because they didn't get that. You get to Acts after Jesus has died and risen. You see some very, very different apostles at that point. They've learnt that and they, uh, they face far more likely harmful situations where they are being beaten, where they are being threatened with death and that fear isn't there. See, the emotional response has changed because their worldview has and we need to do the same thing. We need to aim for the same. Now what this does as we change our basic beliefs and values is it does shape our reaction to the world around us. And we will find that as we go through this, that by the help of God's Spirit, we won't be just changing external behaviours, but God will be changing us even at our very core. And that's something I hope that we can long for, and I hope this sermon series is going to be helpful in making happen for us. And let's pray that that would be the case. Loving Father, we do thank you for this wonderful little passage with the Good Samaritan. We thank you for the time we've been able to spend in it and maybe thinking about it a little differently from what we might normally do so. Help us to see the world, though, as you see it. Help us to value what you value. Help us to learn to hate what you hate, to long for what you long for. And we pray that in doing this, we would live every part of our lives more and more in obedience and, and service of you. And we Pray that that might include the way we respond emotionally to things that we see out in the world and situations we come up against. And Father, all of this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.